any shock value I might have felt being John Constantine played by Keanu Reeves or John Constantine as an NBC TV show was mitigated by the fact that I'd already seen John Constantine in a porn movie f***ing another DC character. So there you go. Radio Drome. Welcome to Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley, and Cecil and Peter will not be here this week, but Stephen Bissett is here this week. I spoke to him last summer. We talked about horror movies and whatnot, and this being an older interview, you'll notice my microphone is a, is a different microphone, so I sound a little bit different. But Stephen was on a telephone, so there's a few audio problems, but there's not much I can do about that. But right now, before we get to the interview, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free Power O-Ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME. Stephen Bissett is one of those guys that if you're into horror, not only do you have to know his work, is arguably the most famous for his work on Swamp Thing, along with John Taliban, Rick Veecht, and, of course, Alan Moore on that classic Swamp Thing run where he was the artist. But he also had his own publishing company, Spider Baby Graphics, he had his own many comic books, such as Taboo and Tyrant. He's done a whole lot of things. His comic book work has appeared in such diverse places as Film Threat Magazine ran one of his comics. He's been in heavy metal, epic illustrated places like that. But he's also a writer. He writes for various magazines. He's a huge horror movie fan. And that's why we're talking not just horror movies, but we talk about horror his his work has appeared in so many different magazines, Fangoria, Video Watchdog. He does a lot for some some. I think the magazine is called Monster. He's a teacher. He teaches at the at the uh, University of Cartoon Studies. And Stephen Bissett is an all around great guy. He's he's a guy who I owe more than I can ever repay to him. When I was at some of my lowest moments, he helped me. This was a man who, at the time, did not really know me all too well, and he went out of his way to help me. So I owe Stephen Bissett a huge debt of gratitude on a personal level, which I'm not going to go into anymore. He is one of those all-around great guys. He's one of those guys that, when he sees somebody up and coming, he will gladly extend his hand and say, Is there anything I can do to help you? He's one of those kind of guys. And he's also a huge horror movie fan. Here we go. We talk horror movies. Steven, you've been part of the horror field in various aspects from comic books to no to novelizations to writing to movies and whatnot. What is it that draws you to the horror field and why does it keep bringing you back after all these years? I love it. I always have. I mean, you know, we can go into my earliest memories. I've I've talked about elsewhere. You know, those I was craving this stuff for as long as I can remember. The entry was 
you know, dinosaurs, like all kids. I, you know, I grew up loving, loving dinosaurs, and I just never outgrew it. I still love them. You know, the horror stuff really bubbled up early on. I was born in 55, so I'm a monster kid. You know, the the uh, availability and the popularity, even growing up in northern Vermont, of things like uh, famous monsters of film land, the Aurora uh, monster model kits and all that stuff. It was everywhere when I was a kid. Edgar Allan Poe, real formative influence. I had a grade school teacher, I think third grade, Mr. James, and he read us The Pit and the Pendulum, and oh, man, <laughs> that that set off my trying to get my hands at the local library and every stitch of Edgar Allan Poe I could find, and it was all there. So, you know, I just, uh, I always gravitated to it. I was once on a panel early in my career, sometime in the early to mid-80s, and it was me, Rick Veach, Bernie Wrightson, John Tottleben, and Gene Colan. And somebody asked us why we were into horror, and uh, one of us jokingly said, well, you know, I was raised Catholic. Well, all of us were raised Catholic, (laughs) so maybe Catholicism has something to do with it. Do you think horror has changed over the years? I don't mean just for you. I mean, in general, what we consider horror some examples would be like, I've had people, and I disagree with this, that say like Count Chocula and Bugs Bunny fighting vampires and zombies and things like that. Take the sting out of what's supposed to be horrific by making them cartoony. We've now homogenized them and pasteurized them. Or at the same rate, look at how slasher movies, for instance, have gotten more sadistic and mean. Do you think it's moved in either direction, really, or is it just Well, yeah. I mean, it cha- every generation reinvents it. Every generation has to find their own level. You know, I, uh, a generational shift that, that I recall happening early in my lifetime is when the boogeyman went from being something that kids were afraid of that parents would use as a um, behavior modifier. The boogeyman will get you if you don't watch out. Be good or the boogeyman will get you. That's a tradition that goes back to Mother Goose and and the earliest forms of of children's literature. When I was a kid, it was Maurice Sendak, Where the Wild Things Are, that changed it culturally for all time, apparently. You know, from, from Where the Wild Things Are onward, you suddenly see in the pop culture the boogeyman monsters becoming not something that's going to help modify your behavior, make you behave, but actually our friends, you know, a familiar. Uh, the way that the cats were witches familiars, the, the Max goes to where the wild things are and they become afraid of him. Sendak was riffing on aspects of childhood and and his own attitude about childhood and adults and so on. But that book was a huge hit. It was in every library and it was in every school library. And you can chart the cultural shift in what the boogeyman was from that turning point. So every generation, and you and I could walk through any number of them, Josh, you know, we'll find those turning points. Now, yeah, you know, vampires become sanitized and made... Uh, into something cozier through characters like Count Chocula on breakfast cereals and the Count on Sesame Street and so on. But vampires are made scary again to that same generation. And we see that cycle play itself out time and time again. Uh, The vampire as seducer is a very appealing, a very sexy thing. It's no mistake that the first Dracula, the sound Dracula, 
from Universal Studios starring Bela Lugosi was sold as a love movie. You know, it was sold as this the strangest romance that ever existed. And a lot of women loved Bela Lugosi. He was sort of a Rudolph Valentino figure in the 1930s. That's no different than Twilight, you know, for the current generation of youngsters growing up where vampires become romantic figures. But at the same time, they also become terrifying figures. You know, the almost the same month that uh, the Twilight movie hit theaters, Let the Right One In started to pop up at film festivals and in American theaters. Uh, you know, I can't think of of a, um, an example that's so readily apparent of at the same time that a generation is offering a popular horror archetype, the vampire, as being a romantic ideal, that we also immediately get a corrective, you know, let the right one in, plays off of that whole thing of um, a little boy who's bullied and he has no champion, there's no adult who will stand up to him, and he meets this odd girl that lives in the apartment block that he lives in, she suddenly becomes his defender. She becomes his salvation. And as the story unreels, we come to realize as the adults watching this drama that um, she's not a little girl. In fact, she's probably not even female. She is some sort of vampiric being. And that what this kid is probably teasing himself into with this relationship is that he's going to become her next Renfield. And it's played as both a relationship that is going to help this kid mature and also a very terrifying, parasitic uh, relationship that is going to consume him as an adult. And we're shown where that's going to go by what happens to her adult Renfield. You know, so, yeah, horror changes constantly. But part of why I love it and part of why I'm addicted to it and part of why I follow it in as many forms as I can, in as many media as I can, is I love that yin-yang. That as soon as, you know, uh, uh, some horror archetype is sanitized and laundered and presented as something that can be easily commodified and sold to the public in a safer form, Immediately, like a -a whack-a-mole, a dangerous version of the same archetype will appear almost simultaneously and give it teeth again. And that's the power of the horror genre, and and that's why I think it's important. Do you think that the availability of video really helped the horror genre, especially in movies, but also television and whatnot? Because prior to that, and I'm sure you know this very well— when you wanted to see a horror movie, you had to wait and scan the TV guide and hope it was going to be on on a UHF channel at 3 in the morning. We didn't even have UHF channels. <laughs> That's how old I am. <laughs> I remember when, uh, you know, I remember when uh, public television first appeared. That was all in the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, video certainly helped it. Uh, you know, the chronology as I experienced it, Josh, uh, again, I was born in 55. When I was a kid, up until about the age of 10, 11, all the horror movies were safe for kids uh, because, with precious few exceptions, like David Friedman and Herschel Gordon-Lewis sneaking, you know, something like Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs through distribution in drive-ins and theaters, almost every movie had to pass the um, uh, motion picture codes and regulations that had been in existence with very few modifications since 1933. Anything we saw on TV had been carefully neutered, 
you know, uh, in most cases edited and, and cut. Also, TV at that time was a totally commercial medium. We didn't have any alternatives like cable or video. So even the scariest movie you could think of that might pop up on television would be interrupted by commercials. That necessarily breaks the spell that a horror movie would have on you. But that was starting to change by 1965. It took a couple of years for the impact of Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs to really change what horror movies were. And I remember, you know, seeing movies like Chamber of Horrors from, from Warner Brothers, uh, the movie that High Averback made, which had advertising that promised stuff like uh, Blood Feast or Psycho had delivered, but didn't deliver it. So, you know, even by the mid-60s, you would go see a movie that would promise to be the goriest thing you'd ever seen, but they weren't going to go there because there were still a lot of market forces mitigating against it. That didn't change until I was a teenager, and it was really movies like Night of the Living Dead and uh, The Conqueror Worm, which is how we saw The Witchfinder General, the Vincent Price film directed by Michael Reeves. 68, 69 is when all that stuff started to change. And I think a lot of it was because of television news. We would sit down to dinner every night at 6 o'clock. My dad would turn on the CBS News. That was the network he preferred to watch. And we watched footage at some point during that half hour of Charlie Company or some other division in Vietnam. And we saw what death looked like. You know, we, we got a taste, vicarious as it was, of what was going on in Vietnam. I'm also the generation... I. I remember my mother and my at the adults in my world reacting to John F. Kennedy being assassinated. But I remember seeing Lee Harvey Oswald shot and having that played again and again and again on television. So my generation, by the time we were, you know, nine, ten years old, we knew what it looked like when somebody was shot. We didn't buy into the Westerns anymore that you got shot, you put your hand up to your chest and you fell down. We knew what it looked like. And that became reflected in um, not so much the horror movies initially as in movies like Bonnie and Clyde. And um, that made the horror movies get tougher. Uh, it was movies like Targets with Boris Karloff, uh, the one about the sniper based on the Charles Whitman shootings in, in Texas, um, movies like Night of the Living Dead and movies like The Conqueror Worm that really changed what horror movies were and could be. And by the early 70s, all bets were off. I mean, you know, I, we never knew how far a horror movie was going to go by the time I had my license at age 16 in 1971. And, and I could, you know, pack up a couple friends into the car and we could legally go see movies that there's no way any adult would have taken us to when we were kids. I'll never forget that Christmas of 1971, Josh. I mean, the big movies, Christmas of 1971, Dirty Harry, Straw Dogs, A Clockwork Orange. Those were the big movies at the for Christmas of 1971. And already that year, we had seen Macbeth and The Devils. Any movie that was made after 1971 that presented itself as a horror movie had to go further than those in some way, shape, or form. So video made that even more available. I mean, how old are you, Josh? When were you born? I was born in 1975. Okay, so you grew up with video. You grew up with, with video stores. So that meant it was more readily available to your generation than it ever was to my generation. You know, I had to actively be able to get in a car and control my own ability to get to a theater 
to even get close to seeing the stuff that you could walk into a video store and rent off the shelves. And in a lot of cases, I can think of videos that, you know, I rented off the shelf once video hit northern Vermont, which would have been around 1981, 82, 83. That's when we started really seeing a lot of mom and pop video stores or grocery stores racking videos. And some of it was stuff we never got to see in America. You know, a lot of f***ed up European movies suddenly popped up on video. And a lot of stuff that never got released theatrically suddenly would pop up on video. But in other cases, I would rent movies on video and be pissed that the video I was watching wasn't the movie I saw in theaters, that it had been cut. So in some ways, video unleashed a lot of fare that would not have been available otherwise. And, and some of it was uncut. In other ways, video was also another controlled medium, uh, either accidentally in the case of, of a lot of films. You know, the distributors would just rush out on video or transfer or whatever print they had their hands on. The first releases of Andy Warhol's Frankenstein and Andy Warhol's Dracula that were widely available in video stores were the R-rated prints, and those were cut. All the shit that made those two movies so outrageous and so worth seeing when they first came out wasn't on the, the video cassettes. And Derry Argento's films, as those came out on video, almost all of them were cut. They, they were not the complete versions we were seeing. And in some cases, they weren't even the version that had played in theaters, which had already been edited in, in many cases. I would argue Fulci's stuff as well as Argento's. Well, Fulci stuff, uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I remember going to see City of... <laughs> Why am I blanking on it? City uh, of the Living Dead, a.k.a. Gates of Hell? Gates of Hell is how I saw it. Uh, that's why I was blanking on the title. I was trying to remember how it played when I saw it at the drive-in. Gates of Hell. That was complete. I mean, that played on drive-ins in America with no cuts. You know, the girl coughing up her guts, sitting in the car next to Michele Salave, the zombies reaching and grabbing the back of people's heads and tearing their brains out. That was all on the, the big old drive-in screen and in Shelburne, Vermont, when I first saw it. But other Fochi... You know, we never got to see the Beyond Uncut here. Played as uh, Seven Doors to Hell, I think was the title. Seven when Doors played. of Death. I have a big box. Uh, of Death, that that's it. I've got the poster with that, you know, really grotesque foreshortening on the woman's arms. Um, that was cut to pieces when it played theatrically. On the other hand, um, and I think you and I have talked about this before, I grew up in... Uh, a part of New England where, and I didn't know this at the time, nobody was talking about it, and there's no way anybody would have talked about it. We found out after the fact, we were a test market for Hallmark releasing, and they were the outfit out of Boston, uh, no relation to the card company or the family channel. Hallmark releasing are the guys who released Mark of the Devil and Last House on the Left. Mark of the Devil was unleashed as you know, rated V for violence. It was essentially an unrated movie. It did not play in an R-rated version until American International Pictures picked it up the following year and reissued it into wider release. We saw the full version up here with the vomit bags. I still have mine. And um, we also were a test market for some of their films, like the version I saw of Last House on the Left, when I saw it at the Twin City Drive-In on the Barry Montpelier Road in Montpelier, Vermont, was more complete than the version I saw on 42nd Street when I was a student at the Joe Kubert School living in New Jersey for two or three years. The version I saw of Twitch of the Death Nerve the Mario Bava film, better known as Bay of Blood these days, was complete when I saw it 
at that same drive-in. In fact, the same night. It was the triple bill of Mark of the Devil, Last House on the Left, Twitch of the Death Nerd. And I came out of those movies punch drunk. <laughs> when I caught it later on 42nd Street, the most lurid exploitation venue uh, in the Northeast was 42nd Street to Deuce. It played there as Last House Part Two, and it really pissed me off because every murder scene had been cut. Well, that's because it was an R-rated print, and the print that we got up in northern Vermont because Hallmark knew nobody from the MPAA was going to be up there. We got the full high-octane versions of those films. So it's funny how that stuff was regional. So I saw, you know, I saw a version of Baba's Twitch of the Death Nerve, which was more complete than the one I ever saw again in a theater, and it was more complete than the version that Gorgon uh, video released um, under the title Bay of Blood. And that drove me nuts, you know, because I remembered what I saw <laughs> and, and how vivid it was. So in some ways, video was a great breakthrough, and in other ways, it was yet another commercial venue that f***ed around with a lot of these movies. That's just how it was, you know. I mean, there were there weren't that many different that many differences between the kind of fly by night outfits that would release videos compared to the kind of fly by night outfits that would release a lot of films to the drive-in circuit. A lot of those companies would come and go in two or three years. You never know what you were going to see. <laughs> you, you you know you'd go see a movie with a different title and you're two minutes into it and you're like oh I saw this before only last time it was called Kill Baby Kill now it's this you know <laughs> so you never know and I think I think sometimes it comes down to the age you saw it in like you mentioned you saw these movies in the theater or at the drive-in specifically and then when you saw them on video yeah you were at a much more formative age when you saw them you were you were much younger than when I saw this stuff. Right. But I mean, like to me, I saw all of the old Hammer films on UHF television, mono prints, beat up, full frame and missing all of the nudity and gore. And I loved them. Yet when I saw them on video, uncut, widescreen, digitally remastered in hi-fi sound with all the nudity, they don't feel like like Hammer films to me anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, we're all sort of we all, you know, we all take in this stuff at a formative age and that becomes sort of codified as the version we prefer or we can never really you know we can revisit this work but we're never going to re-experience it the way we did the first time we saw it I'll, I'll switch gears just a little bit here josh you know i'm of a generation that grew up with vinyl i have hundreds of cds but i have certain albums i prefer listening to on vinyl now i my son daniel is is a musician and and was for quite a number of years a pretty hardcore record audiophile and collector he would talk about he preferred vinyl because it was a warmer sound and this and that you know i gotta tell you i got some albums i've held on to since i was a kid i love every pop scratch <laughs> and distortion because those to me are the authentic you know that's the way i heard them that's the way i grew up with them i've got them on cd i listen to them in the car when i'm working but that cleaner more precise digital sound I, I'm listening to, you know, Captain Beefheart, and I'm listening to Frank Zappa albums I grew up with, and I miss those scratches and pops when I'm listening to them. I, it's, and that's kind of what you're talking about with the Hammer films you grew up with, you know? It's like they were more real to you when you first saw them because they were raw, fresh experiences. That said, man, I fucking love the fact that I've got, I mean, I'm looking right now from my chair at two shelves of Hammer films on DVD, and I love the fact that I can revisit that stuff. That it's more complete than almost anything I saw of them. 
uh, whether on TV. I experienced most of them first on TV. It wasn't until the later Hammers, once I had a, a driver's license, that I got to see them in theaters for the first time. Taste the Blood of Dracula and, and after that. Yeah, see, like, like to me, when I see, I grew up watching, you know, UHF TV and I had early cable. Like, when I see a Godzilla movie, widescreen, it just doesn't look right. It's color corrected and it's framed right. I'm used to Godzilla being washed out with bad dubbing and full frame and... And it, it just it doesn't feel like you know, a that's part, movie to me, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the nostalgia. I've, I've stopped buying a lot of these, I, I call them boutique VHS that's being put out these days because some people are deliberately uh, downgrading the material they're putting out because that to them is what VHS is supposed to be. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that, that may have, those kind of, that kind of fetishizing of those artifacts, particularly degenerative artifacts, I understand it. I, I and and I I grasp what they're where they're coming from and why it exists. But at the same time, it's it's clutter. In one way, what you're talking about, Josh, I can give you an example. Right when I was a kid, I first saw George Powell's War of the Worlds, the 1953 adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, on television for the first time. And when I first saw it, it was on black and white television. Those Martian warships looked real to me. Then I got to see it when it was on TV the second time, but by then my dad had sprung for a color TV set with a bigger screen. So the second time I saw War of the Worlds was on color TV. It looked even more amazing than I ever could have imagined watching it in black and white. And that's kind of the War of the Worlds experience I fondly remember. Now as I got older, we started having, even up in northern Vermont, Film societies started popping up. And the third time I saw War of the Worlds was a 16-millimeter print projected at the Oddfellows Hall in Waitsfield, Vermont. And it was amazing to see that movie on a big screen, but it wasn't as impressive for me emotionally as it had been when I saw it, you know, at a younger age on a color TV. Then Laserdiscs came out. Really wanted to see War of the Worlds on Laserdiscs. Right, because I really wanted to see those special effects, and on Laserdisc I could see the wires. And then it came out on DVD, and I bought it again on DVD. And with all the digital restoration and and improving of the images, you see every seam of those special effects: the mat lines, the the you know the wires that are uh, suspending the the Martian war machines. It's a very different experience. <laughs> And looking back, well, of course it looked better on TV. TV had crappy reception. All those artifacts, special effects, were blurred out by the screen. And I think that's maybe part of what you're talking about with the Godzilla movies, you know? It's like we see them on TV, and it, it eliminates a lot of those seams that we can see so clearly when we watch them on DVD now. Yeah, you know, that's nature of the beast. I'm not going to regret and or necessarily want to go back to. I've kept a couple of my Godzilla movies that are on shitty uh, DVD transfers, and they're kind of fun to watch sometimes. But you know, when I really want to watch a Godzilla movie, I I happily pull out my uh, Japanese Showa collection that Toho put out because they look they look and sound fucking great, man. <laughs> but you're right; it is different than they looked back in the day, the way most of us first experienced them. Part of that, I think, is the perception of time. Because, like, the younger generation who didn't grow up with video, in my case, or, like, the drive-in and, you know, commercial television, in your case, they don't understand, like, 
my son would see a VHS, and and this is you know this is the way I'd always seen Toxic Avenger or something like that, and he's like, why does it look so soft and crappy? And I'm like, it looks spongy to them, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all, you and I can bitch about CGI and computer effects all you want. You know, and we're going to sound like two old farts sitting on the porch, spitting tobacco in a can. This generation is growing up with that stuff, and they are going to look back at it as fondly as I look back at Ray Harryhausen movies. And that's the fact of it, Josh. I mean, every generation is going to fall in love with whatever the the media was that they first experienced certain sensations and certain images and certain ideas from, and that's going to be what they're nostalgic for. I think it's amazing that, you know, you and I can, we're, we're being perhaps listened to right now by people who grew up seeing every Dario Argento film on DVD or Blu-ray in as close an approximation to what Dario wanted that film to look like as is humanly possible. And I think that is, is cool. I think that's to be celebrated. On the other hand, I, you know, this generation also grew up with video games. Uh, which is a media I chose not to engage with. You know, I made a choice at a certain point in my life in the late 70s, early 80s. No, this doesn't interest me. I'm not going to pursue it. And I know for a fact, because I can see it in mainstream movies, that it has altered storytelling. It has altered the nature of spectacle. And that this generation growing up with video games being as real and vital a media to them as LP records and uh, radio and movies were to my generation, that it's a whole new paradigm. And, and I can intellectually grasp it. I have made a decision in my life not to explore it. And that means I have rendered, I have rendered myself illiterate in a certain aspect of contemporary media. My students, I mean, I teach at a cartooning school, Josh, which you may or may not let your listeners know in the uh, in the wrapper, and I teach at a cartooning school. So every year, I'm sitting down with another representative group of the current generation. They are totally into video games, some of them addictively so. And it colors every aspect of how they tell stories, what they even think a story is, is colored by video games, and I just have to accept that as the new reality. I'm not going to bitch about it, because it is the new reality, and I'm the one who's out of step. They aren't. But I have to recognize it. I have to, because I'm a teacher, find ways to work with it, and I also have to learn enough about it that I can appreciate where it's coming from, if only so I can recognize the artifacts when they pop up. But it has changed movies. I mean, you and I know that. It's changed movies in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. But be that as it may, you know, those are the new artifacts for this generation. They're going to look back at video games the way you're talking about your love for VHS and that look of VHS being vital to you as genuine experience. You know, on the other hand, I cannot fetishize, you know, trying to watch movies late night with rabbit ear reception, (laughs) which is how I grew up watching a lot of horror movies. One in the morning, the TV turned way f***ing down so it wouldn't wake my parents, and a snowstorm's coming through and the reception's going in and out. It is a horrible f***ing way to experience a movie for the first time. (laughs) So I, I don't have a lot of warm and fuzzies about that. 
fair enough. I disagree with you because I, I think that, I don't know, maybe it's my nostalgia goggles, but I disagree with you. But you, you mentioned your students. Now, they're obviously of the younger generation. Now, you've done so much in the horror field. Some are. Some are. Now, we have graduated students who are 63 years old. So just so you know, most of them are younger. You're right. I mean, like, arguably, you're the most well-known for your work on Swamp Thing during the Alan Moore. Do, do you get people who know that, or, or do they know you from writing for Video Watchdog or Taboo or whatnot? Has your Swamp Thing stuff kind of fallen by the wayside, or is that still what you're known for? Oh, no, that's what I'm still known for. The Swamp Thing stuff is still in print, Josh. And it's not just in print here, it's in print around the world, you know. I just, in our graduating class, we had, uh, we, we've got alumni who are now my peers. I, I look at our graduates once they graduate as being more a peer rather than, they're no longer my students at that point. And the graduating class of 2016, who graduated at the end of May, we've got students from India, from Malaysia, from Colombia, most of them knew Swamp Thing because the work was in print in their country, in their language, and they know that work. I occasionally will will get a, a package or a box from DC Comics, bless their hearts, and they'll send me and John Tottleben maybe once a year. It's not often, but we'll get a surprise package, and it's like, hey, here's a copy of the new Spanish printing of the collected Swamp Thing, or here's the new French edition. I mean, that work is out there, Josh, and it's going to outlive me. And I, I, am, I am resigned to that fact that that will always be what I'm best known for. Some of the students come in aware of Taboo. Uh, most of them come in, you know, not aware of it. Or if they're aware of it, they've heard of it. They've never read it. I donated a complete set of Taboo to the Schultz Library, which is the Center for Cartoons Studies Library. Uh, named after Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. You know, my students will mention to me, hey, I took part of the weekend and, and read Taboo, and that's fucking cool, you know? But the Swamp Thing stuff is still available and accessible to them. You know, the new issue of Rue Morgue just came out, and what's on the fucking cover? One of my Swamp Thing covers. There's nothing in there about me or Swamp, or Alan Moore and John Tolliben and Rick Veach and my Swamp Thing. It's an article about Len Wein and Kelly Jones' Swamp Thing, but what's on the cover? It's one of my Swamp Thing covers. Which is ironic that work considering is, your history with Rue Morgue, too. Well, you know, i got to accept that's how it is, you know? It's like, I mean, I've put out, I, I've put out books like Teen Angels and New Mutants where I'm including pages from Batman in there, and, you know, that Swamp Thing work is now, we did that in, from 1983 to 86. That work is in, in the canon, and those images are going to reappear in all kinds of forms in all kinds of ways. And it's nice when it's acknowledged. It's nice when I get even paid for it, but that's rare. I do get paid by DC when they reprint the work, but when other publishers use that work for any reason, we don't say anything from it. You just have to look at it and go, hey, it's nice they're remembering it, you know? Nice to be remembered. No, Not many downsides to that. They're not remembering me because I, like, cannibalized my mother or... <laughs> You know, murdered a bunch of people. They're remembering me for some drawings and some work that I did. That's sweet. One of the characters you co-created made a big splash, not enough for NBC to renew it, but like when Constantine was a TV series, and I actually, I'm 50-50 I'm on the Constantine Keanu Reeves movie. I think it's a great movie, but it's a terrible Constantine movie. What, what do you think when you see your creation, or your co-creation in this case, on the screen like that? Because I, I know you were not the biggest fan of the TV series. You, you were kind of vocal about your issues with that. Well, you know, I have to say, once I got to see the series... And I didn't get to see it. We don't get broadcast television. 
you know, my wife and I don't have cable. We now do stream stuff from Netflix and so on. I didn't get to see Constantine until I was in a hotel room. I got to catch one episode when it was on NBC because I happened to be traveling and it happened to be in a hotel that carried that channel in their in their samplings. And then I finally saw the whole season last summer when my wife and I were invited to attend a convention in New Zealand, of all places. That is a long-ass flight, Josh. It's 13 hours. Uh, you know, the uh, the airline we were with had a great selection that you could watch stuff on your little private TV monitor on the, the back of the seat right in front of you. There was Constantine. So that's when I watched them all. I watched them back-to-back on a red-eye flight that was taking me to New Zealand. And I actually enjoyed them. I thought it was a pretty good show. It didn't have the edge that it would have had on, you know, it's nothing like the Showtime or the HBO series that are on. They weren't allowed to go anywhere near the kind of adult thresholds that series like Penny Dreadful and American Horror Story habitually work with. And it couldn't even go as far as Stranger Things goes. But given the parameters of it being a an American, you know, network program that had to abide by standards and practices, I was pretty pleasantly surprised. It's weird when you see your something at a hand in reinterpreted in a new medium. At the same time, I have to keep perspective. I'm best known for a body work I did that was a reinterpretation of somebody else's creation. <laughs> you know, Swamp Thing wasn't my baby. It was Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson's creation. It wasn't mine. It was a comic I got to work on that I had an affinity for. People seemed to agree that I had an affinity for it, as did Alan Moore and John Thaloban and Rick Beach, my partners in crime. But I was working on somebody else's material. I have to smile when I, you know, and I'm not dissing him in any way, but, you know, when I, when I read about Alan Moore's upset at Watchmen, you know, Alan told me firsthand <laughs> that Watchmen was his reinterpretation of some of the Charlton comics I grew up with. You know, Blue Beetle and Steve Ditko's characters that were published at Charlton. I, I can't get indignant about seeing something I had a hand in reinterpreted in other media because that's where I made more my fame and fortune as well. Part of working in mainstream comics is you are part of a continuity of generation after generation of creator. And, you know, we've, many of us have taken our pot shots at Batman. I, I scripted a, a Batman story as, as one of the Swamp Thing annuals that I was scripting for editor Karen Berger. So I took my shot at Batman, like almost everybody who goes through, through DC does at one time or another. I could understand if Bob Kane, were he still alive, might have hated the Batman story I did. I, under, I understand where it's coming from. I would be upset if through some circumstance my work that I do own, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, like Tyrant, got away from me and was turned into something really wretched. But in the case of Swamp Thing and even the ancillary characters that we had a hand in creating wholly uh, as original characters like John Constantine, I've got to be philosophical about where those characters go after they've left my hands. They've been out there for decades now, Josh. So I got to tell you, I, before we leave this subject, I did track down one of the porno movies, the triple X adult movies that features the DC characters. <laughs> and I went and found the one that has John Constantine in it. <laughs> 
So any shock value I might have felt being John Constantine played by Keanu Reeves or John Constantine as an NBC TV show was mitigated by the fact that I'd already seen John Constantine in a porn movie f***ing another DC character. So there you go. Your your legacy. I mean, like I said, I, I brought up Swamp Thing and Constantine and all that, but you've done so much more. Does it kind of bother you that more people know you from Swamp Thing than... Taboo, no, Spider Baby, no, we, we, Tyrant? We don't get to decide what we're remembered for. You know, my friend Neil Gaiman once said on the record, A.A. A. Milne remembered today for Winnie the Pooh, and he wouldn't have wanted that. You know, A.A. A. Milne would have preferred to have been remembered as, a, as an adult essayist. We don't get to choose the work that gets remembered. We should be thankful that we get remembered at all, Josh. <laughs> no, and I'm proud of that work. You know, it's not like... Uh, if if you were asking me that question and and it was that I was remembered for something that I was somehow ashamed of or that I wish I hadn't done that that's a very different question that's a very different you know issue but no I you know I'm proud of the Swamp Thing work I it's I'm still proud of the Swamp Thing work I still know in my heart of hearts that we really really did the best we could I also know in my heart of hearts that the four of us Alan Moore myself John Tottleben Rick Veach and I have to include, in, as part of that, that team, the letterer we worked with, the colorist we worked with, the, the two editors we worked with. Len Wein edited the beginning of our run, and then Karen Berger. That chemistry was unique. I myself could never and have never done anything that approaches what that entity that was comprised of multiple individuals created. There was a very volatile and powerful creative gestalt that went on when that group of us worked together on that character. And that's rare because every comic that was coming out of DC and Marvel in that period of time in the 70s and the 80s when we were doing Swamp Thing, by and large collaborative work. And it was very rare to have a collaborative work that enjoyed that kind of chemistry. Um, we were clicking on all, we were firing on all cylinders. We That relationship was really clicking. It was really working. You know, Alan's done amazing work since then. John Tottleben did some amazing work after Swamp Thing, primarily collaborative work that he did with Alan Moore. Um, and sadly, a project that never saw light of day. He and Rick Beach did a project called Hellhead. And God, I wish people could have seen what that was because that was just an extraordinary piece of work that, that ultimately wasn't published. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work I did after Swamp Thing, including some of the ones you've named, Taboo and Tyrant, preeminent among those. But Swamp Thing was unique. I mean, we, we were the right group of people to come together at the right time. And it was at the right time in DC Comics history where they actually let us run with it for a couple of years before they started to mess around with it. And and I, I'm proud of that work. I'm I'm happy to be remembered for it, Josh. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to be who I was, where I was with those people at that time, and that that was the book we were working on. I got no bad feelings about it whatsoever. Well, because like, I wrote that chapter for your book, and in that, and I don't think I'm being unfair here, I say, you know, Alan Moore's script was great. Your art was great. 
separately, but together they created something special. That it was Alan Moore's script with your art that created something that was stronger than either of the two things separately. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think at the time Alan would have agreed, and I know I would have then, and I still do now, and I believe that John would have as well, and Rick would have. We all knew we were onto something. You know, Rick Veach and I had been very close friends ever since we met at the Kubert School in September of 1976. And Rick and I had been talking about for years, you know, what kind of writing needed to happen to elevate comics. And we gave it our best shot. I mean, Rick did a really strong body of work when he was in every issue of Epic Illustrated working with Archie Goodwin. But at the same time, Rick and I knew we didn't have those writing chops, right? We could picture and we could we could uh, imagine something that would elevate comics to a level that we'd always dreamed of, but we couldn't do it ourselves. We, we, we tried, we tried, we tried, and we couldn't do it ourselves. We didn't have the writing chops. We did some artwork on, on stories that we did collaboratively, and we did artwork on our sol- solo stories that we were doing for outfits like Heavy Metal and, and Epic Illustrated. That was our best at the time that we could do, but we still weren't there yet. And the day I got the script from Len Wein, who was our editor, to Swamp Thing number 21, The Anatomy Lesson, and read that script for the first time, Josh. I can't tell you how electric that was to read that script. Hairs went up on the back of my neck, and I got right on the phone to Rick, and I said, you got to drive down here right now. You have to read the script. This is before any of us had fax machines. There was no such thing as the Internet. There was no way for him to read that except to get his ass in the car and drive down to my house, which he did. And we knew the minute we read that script that that was it. That's what we'd been aching for. For years, we'd been aching for and talking about and working toward and striving for. Alan produced it right there. I didn't work alone on that issue. Rick Veach helped me pencil part of that issue. Uh, Rick and I worked together on the imagery for that, and John Toddleman inked it, and Tatiana Wood colored it. Everything fell into place with that Swamp Thing story, the anatomy lesson. And that, to me, was a new ground zero. That was like the new starting point for the rest of my life and the rest of my career creatively was that issue. We were trading letters. Uh, This is, again, before email, and we couldn't afford to call England as often as we would have liked. Transatlantic calls were incredibly expensive back in the AT&T-only era. So we were mailing each other these voluminous letters, five, six, seven-page letters, and our letters would cross in the mail, and it was John and me and Alan all communicating with one another about where we wanted to go and, and what ideas we had. And Alan took our ideas and ran with them. You know, he worked with a lot of the ideas that John and I had proposed. And Alan also brought his own original ideas to the table. And we ran as as hard and fast as we could with those. And it was a very unique chemistry. And it was more than any one of us could have done. Now, one of Alan's great strengths as a writer... And he was, and and he wasn't the first writer in comics to do that. You look at Bob Kaniger's career, Robert Kaniger at DC Comics, and especially his war comics, and you see the same strength. What Alan would do is he recognize, he would familiarize himself with your work as an artist, and he would write his scripts to your strengths. And he would challenge you to go further, but he knew what you were capable of, and he knew what you had done, catered his scripting to the strength of the artist you worked with. And if you want evidence of that, Josh, just look at how Swamp Thing changed when John and I left the book and Rick Veach 
took on the penciling chores on the book. Rick was not into horror. He's done a lot of horrific stuff in his uh, in his graphic novels and his own work, but Rick is not per se into horror, and certainly not the way you and I are as we're talking about this now. Rick was into science fiction and science fantasy, and that's what Alan responded to. And it's like Alan had had gotten out of his you know system the horror tropes and the horror explorations that he shared with John Toddleben and I and went in a whole new direction with Swamp Thing as soon as Rick Beach was on that book. And it was just as good and it was just as exciting and and different. It was a whole different tenor to the series after that. And the other examples I can give you, you know, Alan was writing Watchmen concurrent to writing Swamp Thing. He had worked with Dave Gibbons. He knew Dave's strengths and weaknesses as a cartoonist. And Watchmen was a collaborative venture between Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons that brought everything Dave had to the table in its new zenith. That's how Alan worked. He recognized with almost every artist he worked with, what were they capable of? what, What work had they done before? He would familiarize himself with it. Then he'd explore that to his absolute highest ability at that point in time where he could take you and he even did it with the fill-in issues you know when sean mcmanus did a couple of the swamp thing fill-in issues sean mcmanus did a better job on pog that one-shot swamp thing story that involved you know the alien that would look like pogo while kelly's pogo sean mcmanus did a better job with that story than i could have whether I was working in collaboration with Rick Veach or with John Tolliver. Knew Sean's work by then because Sean had done one previous fill-in, and Pog was a perfect Sean McManus story uh, as a collaborative vehicle. And uh, that's a really rare talent for a comic writer to have, and Alan has it. And it's a very rare skill set to be as highly developed as it is in Alan Moore's hands. There's other writers who do it, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, Joe Lansdale. I mean, there are other comic writers who have, have done terrific work where they tailor their scripts to the artists they're collaborating with. But I had never experienced anything like that before in my career, and I'd been at it professionally for over five years by that point, which is not a long time, you know, given the decades I ended up working in comic. But five years is a pretty major commitment when you're in your 20s. Where do you see the horror the horror genre going? Where do you see it? And where do you see your place in it? Because whether you like it or not, you're a horror icon. Well, I I don't know where my place in it is at this point. I mean, I uh, if I have any involvement right now, it's primarily as a writer, and it's not as a fiction writer at the present. I'm doing a lot of nonfiction writing about horror. I'm really enjoying, I mean, for, you know, since the 80s, I've been writing for fanzines, and it's everything from Deep Red and Video Watchdog to um, magazines like uh, Echo. I wrote for Fangoria and Gorezone for a time. And these days I do a lot of writing. I don't think I've missed, I only missed the first issues of uh, Monster and Weng's Chop. I've been in every single issue of Monster and Weng's Chop um, since they debuted. Um, missing only those first issues when I didn't know they existed yet <laughs> until they existed. So a lot of the work I do these days in the genre if I don't know if it has any value, but it's, you know, writing about horror. Um, and I, tr- I try to write about all media. I've, I, most of it's about horror cinema, but I've also done a lot of articles and interviews about horror comics and um, horror literature and, and so on and so forth. And I kind of feel like I've rejoined aspects of the community. This is the first year in 18 years 
that I attended NECON, which is this wonderful horror writers conference that happens every summer in uh, Rhode Island. I was a regular participant, and then when I went through a big life change at the end of the 90s, I stopped going, and I missed it, and I was invited back, and I went this summer, and I intend to go for as many years as I can manage to go. And that was great, uh, plugging back into that community. It's, 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 a, it's a community I really love, and, and it's a lot of people I really love love. And, uh, and I got to meet a lot of new people that um, I hope to count as friends. As far as where horror is going, uh, you know, I, so I, who knows what my involvement's going to be, Josh, you know? <laughs> in, a, in a way, the fact that Swamp Thing is still in print ensures that I still have an active role in there because I'm constantly meeting young people who have just read Swamp Thing for the first time. And the ones who I'm meeting, I'm usually meeting because they want to tell me how important those swamp things are to them. So that means work I've already done is still making a difference to the current generation and to the new generation that's just coming in the door. So that's cool. Uh, I Again, no downside to that. And, and I'm still really proud of the work. So I'm glad it's still out there. In terms of where horror's going, who knows, man? You know, the stuff that really makes a difference in uh, in the genre, almost all, always the work that comes out of the woodwork, there is going to be some fucking movie that's made by somebody you and I don't know that we've never heard of, that the studios have never heard of, that is going to change everything. We are in an era now of crowdfunding, and that movie or those movies may already exist. They may have already been crowdfunded. Crowdfunding is a very interesting new distribution phenomenon. And, and I say distribution because it's not just a means of raising money to make something. You know, a lot of people are crowdfunding to pull the money together to publish their horror comic or to publish their first horror novel or to get their new movie done or their first movie done. But it's also a means of distribution. And the problem with it is if you didn't crowdfund it, you may never see or read or hear whatever that thing is because they're only producing enough copies to satisfy, you know, the people that put money into it. So there's going to be a lot of blind spots in in our recognition and our experience of where horror goes. However attentive you and I are, Josh, we're never going to miss those blind spots. And you and I are not rich men, so we can't fucking afford <laughs> pumping into those those uh, crowdfunding things too often. But that's the new reality. You know, if we go back in time, most of the movies that changed horror cinema were the movies that came out of left field, you know? And whether it was a studio film like Dracula in 1930, changing everything, or whether it was one of the most world-famous directors not being able to convince his studio that he was contracted with, Paramount Studios, that this crazy, uh, raw little new novel by Robert Block named Psycho was worth making a movie out of, and the studio said, no way. So Alfred Hitchcock took all his marbles from Shamley Productions, who made his TV show every week, and he went off and made his own fucking movie. <laughs> and now Universal is proud that they had a hand in Psycho. But in 1959, that was fucking toxic material. Nobody wanted Hitchcock making that movie except Hitchcock himself. Or whether we're talking about something that comes out of left field like Pittsburgh, when... You know, George Romero and John Rousseau and a group of Image 10 partners who'd been making commercials decided to make their first feature, and it turned out to be Night of the Living Dead, and it changed everything for all time hereafter. Some funky art 
student who had some money from the American Film Institute, and he disappeared for five years with a bunch of his crazy friends, and they made something called a racer head, and they changed everything after that. The stuff that changes horror always comes out of left field. So you and I don't know today what that thing is going to be. I can name some names and maybe give some reference points, but only time is going to tell whether those end up having any kind of impact. Personally, I've been following the work of filmmakers like Scott Shermer, who came out of the Indiana, Indiana uh, Ohio area. He made a little movie called Found uh, a few years ago. And man, that movie knocked my dick in the dirt. I still think that's one of the most powerful horror movies of the last 10 years come out of America. I've also been trying to follow what's been going on in England, in Korea, you know, all these pockets of genre filmmaking. Uh, there really is a renaissance in British horror right now. And thanks to having an all-region player, I order stuff from Amazon CO UK every three months or so to try to pick up what's happening. I don't know where it's going to come from, Josh, but I'm 61 years old. I've been following horror since I was four and five years old. My experience with rare exceptions, it's usually the stuff that comes out of left field that knocks everything into a whole new direction. And I, I just hope I'm lucky enough to stumble on it. You know, when Clive Barker popped up, we were reading the Books of Blood as those paperbacks came out because we were working on Swamp Thing and our buddy Alan Moore is a Brit and he called me on the phone one day and said, Steve, you got to read this new writer, Clive Barker. And Alan started mailing John Tottleman and I, the Books of Blood, as they came out. So John and I were among the few Americans who were reading those sphere paperbacks as they came out in their original form. Man, nobody's heard of Clive, you know? He was just some young gay Brit who looked like Paul McCartney and had a good line of shit. But when he sat down and wrote, it was the real stuff, you know? I still think that uh, that six-volume anthology, The Books of Blood, is the best writing Clive has ever done. He's gotten uh, stronger in terms of his technique, but there has been very little new horror literature that hit the way those first six books did. And they came out of nowhere, Josh. And so that's, I, I, I'm still convinced that's where the next thing's going to come from. You know, and it, it, we've already seen that the virtual reality, the internet, and, and what's possible on the internet can be the vehicle of the next wave of horror. The whole thing with the Slender Man, <laughs> you know, that crazy shit. How many adults were paying attention to that? Well, not many until they started hearing about it. And, you know, I don't know how early in, in uh, its genesis I heard about it, but I know it was after my students had already experienced a lot of that stuff. Stephen has a lot of interesting views on this, and he, he kind of he made me rethink a few things in that interview, and I hope he made you rethink a few things in that interview. And at, at one point in that interview, you heard me mention that I wrote something for him. He has a book on horror comics coming out. As I record this, I believe it's coming out this late summer or early fall, where I wrote a 5,000-word piece on why horror comics mean a lot to me. I, I don't have a title for the book yet. It still doesn't have a, a title. Stephen Bissett is such an amazing guy, and if you don't follow him on Facebook, if you don't follow his work, you really need to. I mean, this is a guy who co-created characters such as John Constantine. He's had such an impact, not just on the comics world, but on the horror movie world. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed that episode.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.